Which Way is Catering with Justine and Bruce. Served up by Variety Attractions, celebrating 60 years of entertainment excellence. This episode of Which Way is Catering with Justine and Bruce is brought to you by Brannigan, Inc. For nearly two decades, Brannigan, Inc. has energized brands in the entertainment industry, helping fairs and festivals connect with audiences. Their creative, results-driven marketing approach drives attendance and makes communications fun. Check them out at BranniganInc.com. Also, this episode is brought to you by Spectrum Weather Insurance. Spectrum Weather Insurance provides a variety of rain, heat, severe weather, and event cancellation insurance customized for your specific event. They have the experience and expertise that hundreds of events rely on each year. Visit them at SpectrumWeatherInsurance.com. Hey, David, how are you? Good. How's it going? Hey, good. it's going great. Hey, it's good to see you. Yeah. Nice Man, to see I, you as well, too. Yeah, I love uh, I love your backdrop. Uh, that's. Oh, yeah, it's our old. Our, this is. Yeah, this house is actually was like this when we bought it. So really, that's that's super um, cool crazy old wallpaper and stuff yeah all right everyone welcome to another episode of which way is catering with justine and bruce served up by variety attractions serving 60 years of entertainment excellence variety is celebrating their 60th year this year on today's podcast a guest that i've worked with in the past and we're going to kind of reminisce with those times it's our good friend david lowry of cracker hi how's it going nice to see you hey david it's great to see you yeah so let's get started in the time when we worked together we worked at a uh, i worked at a label called back porch records here in milwaukee and we had a project with you and the band cracker so we were able to work with you and johnny hickman and it was a great time and i was showing justine the album and the artwork mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. we were showing you kind of going back to that time that was around the year of 2000 2001, 2001. Mm-hmm. justine kind of showed you the back cover of that record and you said there's kind of a good story with that album right so that forever record is sort of at the very end of our major label uh, phase right as the recorded music revenue began to collapse that a couple of years that started that was just like two years after the peak uh, you know just because of the way the digital environment band began to affect record sales whether piracy or legitimate um you know uh download sites and uh, so that's sort of the last of our major label records in some ways uh, a record that was unloved uh, by sort of radio and the press but it's what is a it's a really important fan favorite right and uh sort of marks a transition as we sort of move from i don't know it's it's probably the last sort of alternative record we did but it's mm-hmm. uh, it's 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 really kind of out there in a way if you go back and listen to that it's kind of all over the place um anyway um 
so so that was the last record like where you had like a real record label with like a real like promotion staff and a real uh, publicity staff and a real artwork mm -hmm. for an album cover and so uh what uh what went on with that that record is we hired uh you guys we got together and we hired uh, danny clinch who's now kind of gone on to be sort of one of the most iconic rock photographers out there you know it, it, all, so many photos you see now are actually danny clinch danny clinch was coming up about that time he was first getting famous and uh, we were writing finishing up some stuff for this album in Tucson, Arizona. And so they flew, you guys flew Danny Clinch out to meet us in Tucson, Arizona. And we just kind of wandered around Tucson, Arizona and Southern Arizona for two days, which is his style, just kind of wander around and take pictures. And uh, we had two people from our, two women from our management company, um, Kathy Rivers, who's still actually pretty, uh, she's still in the business. She's like the kind of a radio personality and concert promoter now. Well, they were with us just kind of helping out and we found this uh, old RV park in Bisbee, Arizona that only had, that has just Airstreams and you, you know, it's like a hotel, but you stay in that mm. trailer. So Danny, of course, goes in and starts like, hey, let's, uh, you know, can we take photos here and stuff like that? And then <laughs> got this idea, it's like, hey, go to the thrift store and let's just dress up like we're like, a, you know, couples from like the 1950s or whatever like yeah. that. Yeah. So that um, that's what that, that back photo is um, anyway. And so it was just literally roping in like our assistant managers from the, from our management company into, <laughs> into being in these photos. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, but, you know, that was an interesting time because, you know, you really like it wasn't just like making the records, you know, every sort of piece of what you're doing, you know, you put some money and some thought. So, you know, there's a little bit of, a, you know, uh, so, you know, all these photos are kind of funny and mm -hmm. all of that that we get, except for these two that are the us on the front cover. We're kind of grim because he's just kind of doing the lighting. Nobody's smiling or doing anything like that. Yeah. And uh, and everybody's sort of trying to get their wardrobe together and stuff like that. And then on yeah. the back, it's just it's just uh, I'm sitting there, you know, just sort of sitting there, just sort of waiting for the lighting to get done. And there's a kind of grim look, you know, mm -hmm. like which is. Uh, uh, you know, the album title ended up being, you know, forever. And it's just sort of puts the whole thing. It's like, well, they don't really mean forever. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? Like yeah. everything yeah. sort of came together uh, in this way that, I mean, just nobody puts, there's not enough budget to kind of really think about this stuff unless you're a big pop star or something like that anymore. And it is kind of, it was interesting because, you know, like I said, other aspects of, of what you were doing as far as recording were, were really thought about and, some effort put into right the album was kind of fun because i mean you have a here you have just a, a regular record and you have a song called merry christmas emily on it and then you can <laughs> yeah. and then you're listening to another song which i really like is like the sweet magdalena 
I, yeah, it, it's a, it's a great listen, but then there's another picture inside. Oh, yeah, you guys of don't you look and, happy. Yeah. You and Johnny, you don't look happy. No, that's what we did is we picked all the photos where we weren't really posing. Right. So, uh, uh, you know what I mean? Like, uh, we weren't really posing. They were setting things up, but nobody had, nobody was like playing. To, we weren't really playing to the camera. Right. And so it looks like, you know how, when you look at old photos, like, you know, before people could take like a zillion photos with a digital camera, you know, they were like, they didn't know what the photo looked like, you know, they're like, they could go back and look at it. They could mm -hmm. select it. So then they just develop these photos and a lot of times. Mm -hmm. Because you would have but to, yeah. yeah, you'd have to wait yeah. till the, you took it to the photo mat and had it developed and you were mm -hmm. like waiting yeah. to open up those <laughs> pictures and you're like either A, oh, that one turned out or B, Oh man, yeah. you know, there my thumb was in the middle of it. Right. Or you get things like this, like, you know, like uh, there's a photo of my my wife's parents and it's kind of not long before they got separated or divorced and the photos, you know, they, nobody knows what the photo looks like, but both of them are kind of full. They kind of got their arms linked, but they're sort of pulling away from each other, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, like you normally wouldn't, keep that but that was like the only photo they had you know i think they were at like caesar's palace or something yeah yeah um so, so there's like there's our photo at caesar's palace but it like tells this whole other story yeah so on that same project i remember david i there was one day we had a show in madison wisconsin and mm -hmm. i remember that uh i picked you up and we took a drive to madison and we were doing kind of a radio station uh -huh. kind of tour in the morning and then I dropped you off at the venue it always seems like the relationship between you and Johnny was a special and b on the other side of the coin special because mm -hmm. I remember you had a show and I drop you off everything is fine and then at showtime you guys hit the stage and all of a sudden Johnny's got his whole hand bandage. <laughs> I don't right. know if you remember what happened during that time. We've had a lot of injuries over the years. And, you know, there's a, I, I have no idea what actually would have happened with him. Oh, okay. Oh. All right. I thought it was gonna be like a brawl story. Yeah, I wanted to, yeah, I was wondering if, you know, you guys had between a- them, Well, between the, no, 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 there's not. I mean, I've known Johnny since 1978, but uh, there's a, uh, I don't know. I mean, I can think of like where uh, uh, he uh, just spliced his hand backstage before one of these other shows, just cutting fruit or something like that. So uh, <laughs> I have no idea. I really honestly have no idea. Catering didn't cut your fruit for you? Well, some people don't want it cut, you know, or something like that. Maybe an apple or, sure. or something <laughs> like that. So, yeah. Talking about Johnny, how did that relationship start? Because I mean, you guys on stage are just magic. Um, I knew him from, uh, uh, we both, uh, I think it was like 1978, somebody was putting together like a new wave and punk cover band in the town that we grew up in, Redlands, California. And we both sort of went like, as a bass player and he was a lead guitarist, we both sort of went to audition for it. And uh, I, I don't know whatever happened with that thing or something like that, but we were like, we kind of clicked. And so we, uh, and he didn't live that far from my parents' house. 
So I, uh, you know, got his number and just kind of just kind of clicked. And then later I found out he had joined this other band um, called The Dangers. And then I had started this band called Sitting Duck with these other people. And we started playing like basically uh, house parties together. And uh, we would open for them because they were more popular than us. And then just over the years, you know, I kept his... Uh, kept his number and I would just kind of hang out with him. I didn't really know that many people in my parents' hometown after a while, you know, my old hometown after I went off to college. So I always went back and hung out with him. So after Camper Van Beethoven broke up, he was out in Bakersfield and he was um, kind of him and his brother, I think we're kind of trying to do like the Bakersfield country thing or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so, I don't know, I was like, hey, do you want to try to put a new band together? Maybe we can write some songs or something like that. So we got together and, and, you know, kind of, I had a number of songs going into that album, but, you know, he also put some good guitar licks, signature guitar licks and vocal parts on it. And then he brought in some material like the, the, the song, I See the Light. And, uh, the song Cracker Soul, we brought that riff in and stuff like that. And it seemed like we could kind of click. It was really different from what we were doing with Camper. It was more, uh, you know, sort of roots rock, southern rock, blues rock kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And it's still alternative, but, you know, it had more of like a, you know, kind of an Americana feel to it. So it was a good, good, good spot for, for us to, to, to hit where we overlapped on our tastes. So it worked, you know. We had a hit right out of the box for song on the first record. So, yeah, you know, must have been a good, good plan. I always love hearing those band names like Sitting Duck and what was the other one? The Dangers. Is that what you the said? Dangers, the Dangers. Yeah, the Dangers actually still play. Do they? they still have records and stuff. Yeah, like been going for like like forty years now, right? Wow. It's forty wow. something years now. <laughs> I couldn't. Yeah. They're just a local band still, but they still play shows. Yeah. yeah. Crazy, right? It, yes. So when you came up with Cracker and especially Camper Von Beethoven, how did those band names come about? How do you like, all right, that's the name. It's Cracker. Camper Van Beethoven was uh, my uh, guy that I really is a sort of co-founder of the band with me, but he left after a few months because uh, he was fairly religious and he had this sort of idea that he needed to go and be a missionary. Um, and so he, he went, but uh, he basically had this kind of, uh, he had this sort of stand-up comedy style he was working on where he basically sort of was really abstract. I think it was very Andy Kaufman type influence, mm. like where uh, he it was sort of like he told these basically like he told these jokes that had all the rhyme and the rhythm of a joke but they didn't make any sense <laughs> and so one of the things was it was like let's call it camper van beethoven you know camper van um, van beethoven you know like sort of this weird sort of pun that didn't wasn't really working that was his sense <laughs> it was actually camper van beethoven in the border patrol um and uh that was that was you know basically the band name and it just kind of stuck Mm. Uh, Cracker was just basically because in those days, in sort of the early 90s, there was clearly like one word band names, sometimes food, you know, cake, sugar, a number of bands and stuff like that. But there was also too the notion that, you know, Cracker was very, you know, sort of, I was born in Texas, my family's from Arkansas. 
um, very, uh, there was like a sort of a Southern rock, Southern white thrash sort of element. I don't know if you know the, the history of that word, but it's kind of used more of a slur today, but it's not mm -hmm. really, I mean, like there was a baseball team called the Georgia Crackers. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it has, it has this long history of what it means. It kind of means rural or backwoods or down home, or it was actually referred to people who raised cattle. Um, mm, if you go mm -hmm. back 300 years, mm -hmm. we use more as a slur today, but we sort of had this double entendre that we liked that it had this Southern, Southern rock sort of reference or something to it. So that's what we were doing with it. So in the nineties, when Cracker, when you guys are really hitting it, do you have any stories of interesting meet and greet situations, you know, Every artist has the meet and greet stories they have where their diehard fans. Yeah, where there's mm. the diehard fans, things like that. But then all of a sudden, in comes that guy mm. or that girl. Do you have any kind of situations you could share that were kind of fun or interesting that happened during that time? Well, I mean, I think of like in 1996, we played a show for the Clinton campaign. Oh. Uh, <laughs> And in downtown Atlanta, you know, we played our little show and Clint comes out and gives his speech. And then sort of in the middle of it, he uh, thanks us for, for, you know, coming and playing and, you know, for the rally. And so, uh, you know, it's campaign rally. And, and, you know, then after the show, he poses for a photo from us. And I mentioned that um, my old girlfriend, it's basically my family's, you know, from Arkansas. And then my old girlfriend's father had taught at the same university when he was at a university, at the University of Arkansas, briefly. And he like knew the guy, like, he <laughs> totally knew his name. It was like, hey, yeah, it was like a real politician, right? You know, yeah. it was like, uh, like remembers everybody's name and their relationship and stuff like that. I mean, that's why that, you know, I mean, he really was like a really natural politician and the weirdest thing about that was then for their inauguration ball for doing things like that you'll get an invite to the inauguration ball which is really they do that to raise money okay so it's really a money raising thing because you have to pay money to go for it but it was so weird because i got an invitation to and they do it by state too i was invited to the arkansas one so oh. somewhere along the way that guy you know that guy walks off and says to whatever his body man or something like that, right down that the lead singer from Crackers and, you know, his family's from Arkansas, you know, which was kind of the special one, the, the you know, the, the insider's yeah. one to go to or whatever yeah. like that. So that was, that was pretty interesting. Life at the Times, uh, father had worked at the White House, house and, but, um, for the Office of Management and Budget, but he was a Republican and he was kind of bummed that we went <laughs> to that inauguration because we had to go to his house and get ready to get, you know, ball, get ready to go to this ball. You know, and I could tell he was just like, he wasn't too happy about it. But anyway, uh, yeah, uh, so that's that. So that's, that's, that's a pretty cool. interesting one. Another, another interesting one is playing at um, whatever that venue is in, Silicon Valley, it's a winery, but it has a little small amphitheater outside. Sort of looking out and like in the second row was like Steve Wozniak, you know, the oh, co-famous mm -hmm. Apple, right? And he's just singing on to, singing along with the Eurotrash girl. And uh, 
this is kind of funny. And then he came backstage and just talked to us and he gave me his card, which uh, is weird because it looks like a computer, one of those old computer punch cards. Oh, mm -hmm. and you have to know how to read it to figure out what his phone number is. But it's actually his phone number. I called it one time and he picked it up. Oh, it's not like an assistant or anything. It's like his mobile number. Yeah, and I still have it. And I suspect because of the number. I'm not saying what it is, but yes. uh, yeah. I suspect because of the number, he's kept it. And it really is. He, he gives you this metal punch card. He shows you how to read it. And then you call the, that's really his number. <laughs> okay, wow. call it. Go grab your phone. Let's call <laughs> well, it. Let's call it right now. <laughs> well, I don't actually have it. Yeah. No. Actually, I could actually probably figure it out again. I kind of know how it works. But, oh my uh, gosh, that's crazy. Uh, that's that, awesome, but... David. That's... Well, and that he's a fan. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he or knows. Like, uh, you know, like playing in uh, um, L.A. and uh, you know, like uh, back, you know, go backstage and there's like uh, you know Bob Odenkirk who had hadn't gone done. I don't think it started uh, Breaking Bad yet or whatever. So mm -hmm. he was like Mister Show guy but hadn't had any of the other sort of success yet. And that was kind of obscure, you know? And, uh, and it's like, hey, hey man, yeah. You know, I'm just like talking to him. And I think he bummed a cigarette for me. I think that's just, <laughs> that, that was a long time ago. I, that had to be like over 20 years ago or whatever, and just kind of talking to him or whatever. And then, you know, of course he's a huge star now, another, a number of things like that. So uh, yeah. I mean, I, I mean cool. over the year met famous people, but you know, I never really lived in Hollywood or any any of that stuff because I figured that, you know, eventually if I lived in Hollywood, I would go to some party and just tell the wrong person to fuck off and then that would be the <laughs> end of my career. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that was why I never lived in Hollywood, right? It was just simply, I mean, I did really briefly, like sort of after camp or before cracker, but I, I sort of got out of there. And also too, when you're a musician, you don't, you know, most of your time is spent on the road. So really what you should do is you should pick some geographic center. Uh, you know, so if you look at Richmond, Virginia, one of the reasons I was there is in the middle of the East Coast. So you're about eight hours from Boston, you're about eight hours from Atlanta, and then about eight hours from like all the Ohio um, states and Kentucky and you know, all of that stuff. So you, you kind of like, you kind of in the geographic center of the country, so you can kind of come back home more often than if you live on the west coast and you always have to go out east or something like that i always thought that was basically why nashville is where it is too mm -hmm. and and they and actually nashville artists tend to tour that way they usually go out i think on thursday night and they come back like sunday evening and so a friend of mine who's a writer in nashville told me if you want to meet anybody in nashville you have to go out on monday and tuesday nights to oh, local wow. bars and restaurants because that's the only time anybody's home sure that's the Friday and Saturday night. So anyway, yeah. So hey, kids, if you're out there trying to make it in the music business and country music business, you don't want to go out on a Monday and Tuesday night in Nashville. I don't know if that's true, but it made sense to me. And I did see, actually, I speaking of which, I did see, like, w when I did go out with uh, a friend of mine uh, on a Monday night in Nashville, he's a writer, he had all these people. He worked his way around through the bar to make all of his connections with all the managers and the uh, performers and stuff that he needed to talk to. He gets some more writing gigs. So oh, I that's interesting. That. That's cool. That's very small town. Yes. I mean, it's a big yeah. city, but that 
is very small town. Right? Yeah, it's it's changed a lot though. But yeah, it's getting less that way, but it still works that way. Everybody's, all my students now, because I teach at the University of Georgia and I teach music business students in a certificate program, which means it's not a four-year program. It's just kind of this extra classes that you take and it's music business, right? And they all have other kind of degrees, sometimes music degrees, sometimes journalism degrees, but a lot of them are in the business schools. So they have like accounting, marketing, and management and strategy and stuff like that. So nowadays, almost all of them, when they get jobs, they go to Nashville, even if they're working for the major record labels, you know, like say in the pop or rock division or something like that, all of the entry-level jobs now are moving to Nashville. It's not just country music. It's the entire, uh, you know, most of the business except for the main, I guess, big executives have, they've moved everything to Nashville because it's cheaper. Mm-hmm. It's also in the center of the country. Uh, my theory about that, you don't mm-hmm. know, uh, fly as far and stuff like that. So, so that's pretty interesting watching Nashville. Speaking of uh, you being a professor at the University of Georgia, right? Do you ever follow your students? Do you ever keep in touch with your students and kind of see what they're doing and how far they go? And do you keep in touch with them often? Oh, yeah. I mean, I have people who are sort of, I have students who are, I don't know, they're like mid-level executives now. And I can, they're great because I can, or attorneys or, you know, some some other thing. And I, they're great because I can always like, uh, say, hey, so how does this work now? Or what's different about this? You know, I get that information. But really, uh, my wife's a concert promoter. She uh, started booking mm. the 40 watt 30 years ago yesterday. Oh, nice. <laughs> uh, so she just had her 30th anniversary. Um, she booked the 40 watt, but she also, um, well, she's furloughed from Live Nation right now, but she's also a Live Nation. She has multiple businesses. I, I don't understand how she works for Live Nation and then competes with herself oh, right. <laughs> at another venue. Yeah. That's part of her contract, so she gets to do that. Um, uh. She actually did this cool thing because I'd always have her come into class and talk about the concert promotion side and give those lectures. Um, but she did this cool thing where she basically started a little secret skull and bones type society. Mm. for women in the music business program and like had this monthly meeting for a while she hasn't been doing it lately but the last two years but she did that for a long time and she developed like this kind of sorority of women in the music business right and it's like she's running like the cia or something (laughs) she's placed all of these women all through the business and sort of guided or not just the business but like music business but sort of related parts of it and stuff like that she knows everything that's going on always it's like she's like a a spy chief or something like that (laughs) almost to the point of where you know i mean i mean it's like really super effective like somebody else should steal this methodology and compete with her because it's really hard to compete with because she knows everything Mm-hmm. I don't know, David, sure. maybe we so, should be asking Justine about this. <laughs> yeah, where is she? Yeah. Let's talk to her. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, well, you, you could. I mean, she's in the, I mean, she goes back. I mean, you want to talk about the music business. I mean, she probably got that. She knows more people than I do, just because she's a concert promoter. And as mm-hmm. you know, is, you know, when you give money to artists, they remember your name as a concert promoter, right? They're like, they're, you're somehow like, oh, yeah. 
yes, of course I remember so and so, you know. Mm-hmm. And anyway, yeah. So. Well, speaking of that, David, that's funny because I remember when I worked at the state fair and we brought it, I brought in the bare naked ladies tour and right. you and you were part of that. And I haven't talked to you or seen you in 10 years. I came backstage and walked in the trailer and I, I was introducing myself like it was the first mm-hmm. time we were that I was meeting you. And you guys just looked at me and said, yeah, don't worry about that, Bruce. You're the only Bruce <laughs> Sullivan we know. So you don't have to. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. See, that's the interesting thing about the music business. The live music business is spread all over the country, right? And it's very much more kind of working class and grassroots. And, you know, so most of my students, if they do sort of start out in the music business, they go on the, they tend to go to the live side unless they go to New York, Nashville, or LA. And, um, and you really, I mean, there's a lot about the music business that's really different than the movie business because you actually do go through places like South Dakota and stop at truck stops and like mm-hmm. uh, so there's kind of a more of a uh, everyman working class thing to being on the road as a musician. That's that's a, that's different than the movie and television business. I've always thought that's interesting and it's actually important to remember who your concert promoter is in Milwaukee in Madison, because those are Friday and Saturday nights. You know, those may not be the first Friday and Saturday nights, but you do. Do you have any particular venue on your travels throughout the country that you loved? Any venues that stand out that are like your favorite? Yeah, so uh, so one of them uh, would be, uh, I mean, it, it, they change over the years. Of course, one of them, which is, you know, a 40 watt here in Athens, Georgia, since I've played some of my earliest shows there with Camper Van Beto and her shows on tour because they were so cutting edge and indie, right? We recorded a record, our big hit record, uh, Kerosene Hat. We recorded in the high desert in this little town called Pioneer Town. And it is basically, we went to Pioneer Town because this was this cool biker bar, not quite a hipster place, but almost sort of getting there, very in the no place out in the desert. It was just kind of this cool biker honky tonk that just had usually mostly country music there mm-hmm. and stuff. And so when we went to make a kerosene hat, we had gone up that we were looking for basically a house to rent somewhere. And we figured if we went to the desert, if we found like a mansion in the desert, there wouldn't be like neighbors close by. So we went and looked all around sort of the low desert, sort of the outlying areas of Palm Springs and Palm Desert and stuff like that. And as we were getting finished, I was like, hey, you guys want a really good steak, right? You know, to to our producer we were out with and his engineer. And they're like, yeah, we'll have a really good steak. I go, okay, yeah, we're going to go up and they do this mesquite smoked steak up at this place. And we go up there. And, you know, it's a trip if you've never seen this place. It's adobe. It's made out of just leftover materials. It's adobe, railroad top. All windows are just bottles that have kind of been incorporated into the adobe. It's just really a trippy place. Mm -hmm. And uh, so our producer is just sitting there and suddenly asked the, you know, who I think it was the owner of the place came to our table and was serving us the food. And we said, hey, uh, uh, our producer says, hey, is there a place around here that we could put a mobile truck in and record a band, Uh, you know, like a big house or something like that? And she looks at him and she goes, well, we do own a sound stage. 
And we're like, what? <laughs> They're like, yeah, because this was built as a movie set. So that big building there is actually a sound stage. And we don't, we just got it rented out to some guy who's fixing cars, but he's leaving. So we went up there and recorded Kerosene Hat in this, what was built as a sound stage, but it's sort of also part of the set. So it looks like a barn from the side. And we went and recorded Kerosene Hat in there. And then we ate every night in Pappy and Harriet's. This place is called Pappy and Harriet's Pioneer Town Palace. So what happened over the next uh, almost 30 years is that we didn't realize it, but there were other people who were in the music business that quietly lived out there in this little town because it's basically, you know, it's about two hour, 20 minute drive from Hollywood, but you can live out there and it was really cheap. I ended up buying a place out there, but over the years, Pappy and Harriet's became a real venue. And uh, two of my wife's friends, uh, uh, Robin and Linda, uh, I don't know their last names, uh, bought that place from Pappy and Harriet when they retired and uh, just kind of turned it into like a real cool underground rock venue. They have since sold it, though. They just sold it a few mm-hmm. weeks ago. I think to the people who run Coachella Festival. So mm-hmm. I, but it's a great, really great venue. And I feel like, really like we were part of turning that into something because we about uh 17 years ago we started uh doing a little festival out there with camper and cracker and our friends we called it the camp out and it eventually matched out at that place which really can only hold a thousand people outdoors but it had become this had turned into basically this week-long event David, you were mentioning all the great people that were in the audience to come see you perform. Who do you like to go see perform? So, so I think I think that one of the best shows I've ever seen is is, is Merle Haggard, and it wasn't long before he died, actually. Mm-hmm. And uh, just, I think a lot of those people have played with him for like twenty five years or something like that. It was just yeah. like the greatest. It was like the greatest hits of country music played, performed live by one of the legendary voices. Many of those songs that he wrote, that was like amazing. And also he did something sort of odd at this show that I I, don't, I guess was something he was doing in his last sort of years there. He started playing, he apparently played fiddle. He started playing yeah. fiddle at his shows. I mean, he wasn't as good as his fiddle player, but it was really interesting. He like did some like instrumental stuff. He played fiddle. It was like amazing mm-hmm. to see him do that. So that was really great. And I guess the person I've never seen that I would actually like to see, and I, I just never, I never had much of an appreciation for him when I was younger, but in the last 20 years, I've really grown to love Bruce Springsteen. Oh, okay. And um, I've never seen him. So I'd like oh, to be okay. able to um, see him at some point. But so I know that's not like, you know, I don't know. Uh, as far as more underground stuff goes, though, um, John K. Sampson, who led the sort of punk rock band, uh, indie rock band, The Weaker Thans, his uh, last two records, which are probably five or six years old now, John K. Sampson mm-hmm. from Winnipeg, are, are two of the best like alternative indie records mm-hmm. out there. I think they're, it's like a dude that like uh, wrote had a really great uh, punk indie band called the weaker thans and was one of the is one of those people who just keeps writing better and better and better songs even though it's like a lot of people don't know who he is outside of canada 
And finally, the band called the Black Lips from uh, Atlanta, the garage rock band, their last, re- they've been doing stuff for like 20 something years as well too. Their last record is fantastic. Hmm. So, okay. Yeah. So with uh, songwriting, are you still writing now? Um, yeah, I write. Um, I, the last two records I did, I've, uh, I'm kind of in, I've dropped out of digital civilization. Uh, I made the last two records I made are my solo records that I made. And I just basically uh, pressed up CDs and sold them mail order um, mm-hmm. through my website. And, uh, you know, uh, a lot of what people don't understand with that is I can still put those out digitally. I'm not going to, in fact, I have them on Bandcamp now, the last two I have on Bandcamp. So that's mm. my first stage of digital release. When you were growing up, did you always know that you wanted to be music business, musician, writing songs? Did you know that? Or is there like a different path that you could have taken? Uh, I don't know about when I was really growing up, but by the time I was about 18 or 19, because I'd been playing music with people. And when I was uh, 19, I cobbled together the equivalent of a home studio, which was kind of rare back then. Um, you didn't really have these cheap eight track recorders, but there were these these four track quad machines that you could modify to record on separate tracks. Um, that were out there and then they started making them that way so I cobbled together a little recording studio when I was 19 and I was just working at a newspaper and I started recording my friends and other bands around in town and then I was like okay I'm going to figure this out so I thought I might go to school for engineering but I ended up just doing math and just figure out a different way with your students David do they make you feel current or really old because they probably sit there and go, oh yeah, my grandmother used to listen to you. <laughs> uh, they sometimes do that. Like I usually have students uh, every year that might uh, at some point towards the end of the year, they show up with some vinyl. I usually see it on their desk and I go, I know what this is. This is, they're going to come up and say, hey, will you sign this for my parents? Yeah. Um, okay. Almost always, but not yeah. always. I mean, uh, Sort of kids that are more in the jam band world still tend to know cracker songs because we have some overlap with that world from doing mm-hmm. stuff with leftover salmon and covering the loser and stuff like that so we have some overlap with that um you know frankly uh, over the years i've uh, for examples i i uh, i i usually uh when we're talking about sort of examples of what bands do and stuff like that, I usually use like all these European death metal bands mm. <laughs> as my example. And so I kind of freak them out. Some of them are like, he's really into this, like really fucked up metal, you know, like really crazy, scary metal. Right. But it's just more, I just, you know, it's just for the example, be like, well, this is the label and this is the distributor. And these are the, you know, you know, it's just sort of examples. I'll give examples from that world. Also metal has this, way of being global um in a way that a lot of other music isn't there's like metal bands all over the world mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so anyway yeah cool so okay all right sort of both yeah that's no. that's awesome yes and yeah. no yeah awesome well thank you david yeah it's david thank you, yeah thank you very much for taking the time to talk to justina and i on which way is catering and it, it, it was great to see you and talk to you and hopefully we can see you again sometime. Yeah. Okay. Well, great. Thank you. 
All right. Take care of yourself. Thanks a lot, David. We'll see ya. Bye-bye. Bye. Bruce and I want to thank you for tuning in to our podcast, Which Way is Catering with Justine and Bruce. If you'd like to drop us a line, you can email us at whichwayiscatering at gmail.com or visit us at varietyattractions.com. A big thank you to our sponsors, Brannigan Inc. and Spectrum Weather Insurance. Which Way is Catering with Justine and Bruce. Served up by Variety Attractions, celebrating 60 years of entertainment excellence. That's fabulous.